We pray as we gather, O Lord, as we come to Your Word. We ask, O Lord, that You would use this time, that You would bless this time, that You would set this time apart to strengthen us, to encourage us, to correct us where we need to be corrected. Lord, You know what we need. And You've given us Your Word with which to feed us, with which to comfort us, with which to speak to us. So we pray, O Lord, that You would speak to us even today through Your Word. We pray for our children who are here and who are hearing the Gospel preached. We pray, O Lord, that those seeds of the Gospel would just plant in fertile soil. That You would remove any hindrances that would prevent those seeds from being planted deep and from those roots going down deep in order that in Your time they would come to faith in Christ by Your grace. Use this time, O Lord, to strengthen Your people and to glorify Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm chapter 39, or Psalm 39. Um, Usually we're in the book of John, but we are a church where we believe that all of Scripture is relevant, and so we like to keep one foot in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and since we're going through a New Testament book most weeks of the month, the first week of every month we are in the Old Testament, specifically in the Psalms. Uh, today we'll be looking at Psalm 39. If you remember, last month I skipped over it because as I started preparing uh, to preach Psalm 39 last month, I thought, this is a great, great psalm for the new year. Uh, and, and here we are. It's a new year. Uh, if you think about it, there are really kind of two things that remind us of how short life is. And one of them is the new year. When you turn to a new year, you think, wow, is it 2022 already, you know, uh, it, it's hard to believe 2022 is as far away from the year I was born as 1922 was when I was born, uh, which just seemed like a lifetime ago when I was a kid. You know, only old people, uh, you know, were around in 1922 when I was a kid. Uh, it seemed like it was a totally different world. It was before the Great Depression. It was even before World War II. But when I think of it, that way, it sure doesn't feel like I've been around that long, but obviously I have been. Um, but another new year reminds us all that the years of our lives are so few, uh, and they go by so quickly. Uh, the second thing that reminds us of the fact that life is short is when we're ill, uh, when we are undergoing some type of affliction. Because when you're sick, you, you realize exactly how vulnerable you really are. When you're sick, you realize you can't always rely completely on yourself. And that's a blessing, by the way, to realize that you aren't sufficient to care for yourself all the time. When you're sick, here, here's the real kicker for us, I'm convinced. When you're sick, you're faced with the reality that you're not really in control of anything in your life. And as much as we love to feel like we are autonomous, as much as we love uh, to feel like we are in complete control of our destiny and our lives, we hate the idea that there could be a microscopic germ that would be able to 
harm us or end our lives. But when they do harm us, when they do make us sick, especially when a person gets really sick, it reminds us that life is short. It reminds us of the brevity of life. Life is so short. And it's not only short, but it's fragile. Scripture reminds us repeatedly of the brevity of life. Job said to his friends, Job chapter 7, verse 6, he said, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Uh, a shuttle is what we would call a loom, like what a weaver uses a, a loom. But what that means is that when Job was considering his life, he, he realized that it was just going by so fast, and his days were so few, even though at the time he was in anguish, and it probably felt like his days were just crawling by. Uh, but Matthew Henry's commentary on this verse says this. He says, quote, Our days are like a weaver's shuttle, or, or loom, thrown from one side of the web to the other in the twinkling of an eye, then back again to and fro until at length it is quite exhausted of the thread it carries, and then we cut off like a weaver our life. End quote. And Job laments in the next verse, Remember that my life is but breath. It's very similar to what James chapter 4, verse 4 reminds us of when he writes, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Uh, David says it well in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3. He's swearing an oath to Jonathan and he says this, he says, there is hardly a step between me and death. Now all these statements are true about every single one of us, whether we want to admit it or not. They have been true of us since the day that each of us was conceived in our respective mother's wombs. Life is so fragile, and life is short. And so with that in mind, the wise person will ponder this question, a question kind of similar to this, how do I live my life for something that matters and for something that lasts, given how short and fragile life is. No wise man, no wise woman will spend their days thinking, hey, you know, what's the easiest way to just completely waste the time I've been given on earth? That's the way that the fool thinks. That's the way that the sluggard ponders. The wise person thinks about the brevity of life, the, the fragile nature of life, and he wants to live for something bigger a purpose that's greater than he himself is he wants that purpose to be something that will last far after his days are over so how do we avoid wasting our lives that's one of the questions that the psalmist in this case david is struggling with as he writes psalm 39 what we find here is that david is experiencing some sort of illness which forces him to remember that life is short and that it's important to live for something that matters. And what he comes to is the realization that living for God and His purposes are the only things that matter. He's faced with the reality that life is short and fragile and therefore our days are best lived for the glory of God. And that brings us to the point of this psalm. The point of this psalm is because life is short and fragile, the best investment of the days we've been given is to live our lives in obedience to God for the pleasure and the glory of God. Well, it's possible to dig through the psalm at hand and 
try to figure out what's going on with David. I've done the footwork for you already. It's found in verse 10. If you look at verse 10, you see David is praying to God. He petitions God with these words. He says, Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. That's what David is wrestling with. He continues in verse 11 where he writes, With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Selah. So David is able to, for one reason or another, he's able to see a clear correlation between his own personal iniquity, perhaps something specific that he has done, and the ailment or the the plague that he is currently suffering under as he writes this. Now we don't know what sin or what iniquity he's referring to, But if we're honest, I mean, David was just like you and me in the sense that he had more sin and more iniquity than he could possibly ever count or confess. But we know that God doesn't just leave His children to sin relentlessly or to sin persistently without disciplining them, without stepping in and chastening them to break them away from sin's grip. And David knew that this is how God operated with his children. He knew that God chastens all of his children, that he disciplines all whom he loves. Imagine a father who who didn't do that, who didn't discipline his children, who who didn't try to teach his children to be physically or, or mentally healthy, who did nothing to encourage proper behavior from his children. Imagine a man, for example, who takes his child to the park where the child goes around bullying other kids, cutting in line to, to go down the slide, and the dad just sits there and, and watches as if nothing's going on. What's going to happen to that kid? I mean, no matter how you cut it, the outcome won't be good. The child will undoubtedly have a tough time making friends for starters, because the child doesn't recognize boundaries. And the child will thus almost undoubtedly grow up to be very, very lonely. What father would possibly ever want that for his kids? A father who doesn't love his children enough to discipline them and to teach them to respect others. That's what kind of father does want that for his kids. If you've ever seen the movie The Twilight Zone, from the 1980s. Anybody remember that movie? I've seen that movie more times than I can count. One of the shorts in the movie features a boy named Anthony who could magically make happen whatever he wants. And therefore, for that reason, because he could make anything he wants reality, his father refused to discipline him for fear that Anthony would seek retribution against him. And so, All of the whole family, the entire family, all they do all day long is watch cartoons and eat junk food because nobody wants to tell Anthony no. That that short in that movie is a perfect illustration of a child who has never been disciplined. But God isn't afraid to discipline His children. He's not afraid to tell His children no. He loves us enough to chasten and discipline us as a means of breaking us free from the power of sin. And thus, David uh, is suffering from some form of ailment for this reason. 
And we'll have much more to say about these two verses, verses 10 and 11, when we get to them. Uh, But we should read the psalm understanding that this plague, that this sickness, establishes the context for what we see in this psalm, starting from the beginning. So let's start with verses 1 to 3. Uh, It says, For the choir director, for Jeduthun, a psalm of David, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. So David has been doing everything that he can to restrain his tongue, to prevent his tongue from sinning. The tongue reveals what? It reveals the heart. reveals what's going on in the heart, what the heart is filled with. Jesus said that the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And right now, David's heart is burning with anger. Right now, David's heart is a complete mess. His heart is troubled. Now, it's possible that David waited until kind of the latter part of the psalm uh, to tell us what was going on as a way of uh, forcing us as the reader to become increasingly curious about what was bothering him so much. We don't know, or maybe it was just to make it more poetic. But either way, what we're supposed to see here is just how angry and how troubled David's heart is and what he's doing in response to what is in his heart. He is keeping silent. That isn't easy, is it? That isn't easy at all. If there's one time when we are more likely, if there's one time when we are more inclined to let our tongue off the leash, so to speak, to to stop uh, restraining our tongue, it's when our hearts are troubled. It's when our hearts are angered. And social media makes it even more tempting to release any and all restraint of the tongue. After all, social media is a place where outrage is not only accepted, but where people will actually click on like and give you a hit of dopamine that will get you addicted to outrage on social media. Well, you you might think to yourself, well, you know, don't my friends on Facebook and, and Twitter deserve to know about the things I'm so upset about and so angry about? Not so fast. Listen, here's the thing. It's Almost always, almost always, easier to say nothing than it is to say something wise. And if that's the case all the time, that it's almost always easier to say, uh, to say nothing than to say something wise, how much more is that the case when we are angry and are tempted to stop restraining what we say? David knows that if he sins with his tongue... Not only will he offend God, but the wicked who are surrounding him, you know what they're doing? They're paying attention. They're listening to what he says. They're taking notes of how he's responding to his ailment. And so he knows that if he were to sin with his tongue, whether that be cursing or gossiping or lying or whatever, there are so many sins of the tongue. 
But he knows that if he sins with his tongue, that his enemies, that the wicked who surround him, will be sure to make note of it, and they will use it not only against him when the opportunity to do so presents itself, but they will also sin against God as a result of David's sin. So there's a very important principle behind all of this, a very biblical principle that's so obvious here that we might just overlook it because it's so obviously implied here and it's this how you use your tongue or what you say whether that's typing or using your literal tongue matters what you say matters it's very easy to sin with the tongue and it's better to say nothing than to say something that's sinful David was the king that God had anointed and placed over Israel. His enemies would love for him to sin with his tongue. Why? So that they could assail God and discredit David. I think we can imagine the way that they would do that. They'd say something like, Oh, look at this king that God has put over us. Did, did you hear the way that he is speaking? Why would a holy God put somebody who talks like that over us? How could he possibly praise God with the same tongue that he's cursing with? So on and so forth. We can imagine how they would turn that around and use that against not only David, but use it against God. So the first principle is how you use your tongue matters. The second principle that flows from the first one, and this one is important as well, especially in an age in which social media allows our voice to be heard around the world. The second principle is this. We should be very careful when we're sharing our grievances publicly. In fact, if you think about it, since you don't know 99.999, how many nines, percent of the world, why would you want to share your grievances with the world to begin with? Why would you want to put your grievances in a place where people can find them and where you no longer have any control over where it goes or how it's used? While we shouldn't be quick to share our grievances with the world, we should be quick to share our grievances with the one who matters the most, and that is the Lord. That's what Paul instructed the Philippians to do. As he wrote to them, while he was imprisoned, uh, chained to a Roman guard, he writes this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6-7. to He says, Be anxious for nothing. Says the guy chained to a Roman guard. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What Paul wanted them to know is the same thing that God wants you and me to know. He wants us to know that the peace of God is found by coming to Him with our grievances, troubles, and concerns. And that when we come to Him, we should not only come with our grievances, but we should come with thanksgiving. That is, we should come humbly. We should recognize that, do we, do we deserve to be around today? Of course we don't. Do we deserve our next breath? Of course we don't. We have so much to be thankful for. So come humbly, and when we do that, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. 
think about it. God is the one who can do something about the situation that is troubling your heart. And only God can do the best thing about that. Whatever others might try to do, they they can't do what bringing our troubles to God can do, which is to fill our hearts and guard our hearts and minds with the peace of God. That's what we need. That's what only God can give. And that's one thing that social media cannot give. That's what David needs. And so as we continue to the next section, the next stanza of the psalm, uh, that's exactly what David does. He turns to the Lord and speaks to Him. Let's look at verses 4-6. to six. Uh, Verse 3 ended with, Then I spoke with my tongue. Starting in verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Selah. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. This is the meat of the psalm. This is where we really get to the theme of the psalm. Here we see that David is struggling with the subject that we started our study considering, and that is the brevity of life, just how short and how fragile life is. I mean, a lot of people, uh, not only Christians, not only God's people, but uh, pagans as well, a lot of people have wrestled with life's brevity and have come to some terribly depressing Uh, conclusions. They found humanity's existence to ultimately be empty and void of any true meaning or purpose or significance. For example, architect and philosopher Arthur Erickson famously said, quote, illusion is needed to disguise the emptiness within, end quote. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche uh, said this, he said, quote, man full of emptiness and torn apart with homesickness for the desert has had to create from within himself an adventure, a torture chamber, an unsafe and hazardous wilderness. This fool, this prisoner consumed with longing and despair became the inventor of bad conscience, end quote. Life is short, and a lot of people have looked at that and concluded life is meaningless. But it doesn't have to be. Life doesn't have to be insignificant. It doesn't have to be void and empty. That void in a person's life can be filled. This is what David is struggling with when he says, surely every man at his best is a mere breath. He's saying it sure feels like we're nothing. When I think about this, it sure looks like we are just nothing. Think of it this way. How many uh, breaths do you think you've taken in your life? You have no idea. When was the last time you took a breath that you can actually remember taking? Now maybe if you were deep sea diving or you know something like that, you can remember taking that breath. But the point is, we don't even think about our breaths. We don't even think about each breath we take. We just automatically do it and we take each breath for granted. And David says uh, that each man at his best is a mere breath. What he means is we seem so insignificant. At our best, we are as insignificant as a common breath. 
This is the thinking that's central to the psalm. And the reason I say that is because David doesn't just say this in verse 5, but he actually repeats it toward the end of the psalm in verse 11. So it's interesting to note that the Hebrew word that gets translated breath here is the same Hebrew word that gets translated in verse 6 as nothing. It's the same word actually that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes over and over again where it's commonly translated meaningless. Or vanity. Uh, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or all is meaningless. We read in Ecclesiastes 1-2. But what this shows us is that both Christians and staunch unbelievers can wrestle with the fact that life is so fleeting and ephemeral, so short and so brief. Everyone should realize that life is not only very short, but it's also very fragile. None of us can guarantee that we'll be around even tomorrow. None of us can guarantee that we'll even be around in five minutes. All of us know that ultimately the day is coming when there will be no tomorrow for us. But the Christian has a different way of approaching this problem. And therefore, the Christian will reach a different conclusion than the unbeliever. Although you know, they, can, they can feel trouble and, and anguish over the same problem, the Christian is able to find certain hope, while the unbeliever will find no certain hope or comfort to speak of. The Christian can find comfort in knowing that God is sovereign over all things. Not only over the Christian's own existence, but over when the Christian exists, where the Christian lives, and how many days the Christian's life will consist of. We recognize that God is sovereign over all these things. And when we realize that God is sovereign over all these things, we find comfort in that. We see that everything that we have and everything that we are, every day, every breath, is a gift. God has no obligation to give us anything. The fact that He has given us anything, even today, when when we see things this way, it makes us grateful for and appreciative of all that we have. The unbeliever, on the other hand, when he considers the same problem, when he experiences the same anguish, he's left feeling like either everything is random, that life is just meaningless because it's so random from beginning to end, and thus he feels thankless. He doesn't see it as a gift, so he's thankless. Or he feels like he has to fight to make his what isn't his, which in the end only produces bitterness and envy. So what David does to resolve his musings is he goes to the Lord in prayer. And he seeks the Lord's wisdom. He seeks God's wisdom. That's what he does here in verse 4, where he says, Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. We know that he was angry. That's what we saw back in verse 3. But he doesn't approach the Lord in anger. He approaches the Lord properly. He approaches the Lord in humility. When David says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days, let me know how transient I am. He's not saying, God, please tell me the exact day that I'm going to die. 
He's not saying, God, please let me know when I'm going to be out of here. Rather, when we see what He says as a whole, we realize that He's asking God for the wisdom to live His life in light of life's brevity. And that certainly does require wisdom. Why does He desire this wisdom? Not so that He can just say, okay, well, I'm not perplexed anymore by life's brevity. And not so that He can just despair and feel like life is void of meaning or significance. No, He wants this wisdom. He seeks and asks for this wisdom because He knows that it will cause Him to think about what matters in life and to live His life for those things. For what matters to throw himself at those things, to to cast himself upon those things, to devote his life to pursuing those things rather than all the other stuff that we're all going to lose someday and that will ultimately be insignificant. Now you'll notice as you look at this psalm as a whole, you'll notice that there are three times that we find the word Selah here in this psalm and that two of those three instances follow immediately after the word breath. The word Selah means stop and think. Stop and and consider, reflect on what was just said. In this case, reflect, think about the brevity of life. We live in such busy, busy times where every second we feel like we need to be doing something and it's so easy for us to waste our lives by living for all the wrong things. But God tells us here, stop. Stop and think. Stop and consider what's been said. How do we avoid living for the wrong things? How do we avoid wasting our lives on futile endeavors? The answer that David reveals is in the next stanza. It's simply this, by putting our hope in the right things. Let's look at verses 7 to 11. David continues, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in You. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth, because it is You who have done it. Remove Your plague from me. Because of the opposition of Your hand, I am perishing. With reproofs, You chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Selah. Now this is the third stanza of the psalm. David has been reflecting on the brevity of life. That's what we saw in the second stanza. And he asked for wisdom to live his life in light of life's brevity. But it's not enough to simply acknowledge that life is short and that our existence is fleeting. The question that David wrestles with in this section flows from the brevity of life and the seeming insignificance of life. The question he now must face is, why does God even bother with us? Why does God spend time disciplining us, chastening us as insignificant and as fleeting as we are? Why would He even waste His time on us? Why would He even notice us? It's the same question that Job 
was confronted with. And it's the same question that you and I need to be confronted with. See, when you have a right view of God, when you have a a high view of God, you have to wonder, as Job did in chapter 7, where he says, what is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgressions and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. Do you hear what Job is asking? And do you see the similarities, the, the, the overlap between what Job is saying and what David is saying, they're, they're basically asking the same thing. Job is, is wondering, if God is so great and so glorious and so holy in the sense that He is altogether different from us, then why would God, why would the God of all creation, as great and glorious as He is, even notice a wretch like me, much less take time and effort to discipline me. Seems paradoxical, doesn't it? Seems paradox seems like these two statements don't don't fit together. There's an irresolvable tension, seemingly irresolvable tension that exists between two statements. Number one, that God exists eternally and without need and is great and glorious beyond our imagination. And the second statement, I'm a lowly finite wretch of a sinful creature who's here today and gone tomorrow. What are we to do about the seeming irre- seemingly irresolvable tension between those two statements? James Montgomery Boyce says this. He says, quote, Although man is a passing creature who often does merely strut and fret his short hour upon life's stage, he is also more than a passing creature of an earthly day. For He is made for eternity, for God Himself. Therefore, what happens to Him and in Him, as well as what is done by Him, though of short temporal duration, has eternal value. End quote. What we do with the days God has given us matters. What we pursue, what we love, what we aspire to, it all matters. As I noted earlier, there are some similarities between uh, this book and the book of Ecclesiastes where the author points out throughout the book just how meaningless all the things we live for and, and love and desire and pursue and aspire to truly are. But the book of Ecclesiastes concludes with the one thing that matters. In the final chapter, in chapter 12, the, the last two verses, we read this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And thus ends the book of Ecclesiastes on that note. So does the present matter? Does what you love, does what you desire, does what you aspire to be, do those things matter at all? Yes, 
It does, according to the author of Ecclesiastes. But it only matters because eternity matters. And this is where the unbeliever and the believer part ways. Because the unbeliever has to suppress the truth that eternity matters. Which is what Romans 1 says he does. He suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness. If he were to concede that eternity matters, he'd have to live his life in light of that. But he doesn't want to do that. So he suppresses the truth, ignoring the fact that eternity matters and therefore the present matters. Eternity is a very, very long time and what we do in the present will affect how a person experiences eternity. How you and I experience eternity. And so in light of that truth, the best thing that we can do with today, the best thing that we can do with the days that God has blessed us with is to fear God and keep His commandments. In other words, walk in obedience to Him. Now here's the bad news. You've never done that. In fact, your entire life, all you've done is fail at that. You have sinned against God relentlessly your entire life. Every second of your life you have sinned. Because never once, not even for a nanosecond, have you ever upheld the greatest commandment for one second, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You've never done that. I've never done that. And the just consequence of our failure to do this is spending eternity in the absence of God's love and kindness. Spending eternity in a place that we refer to as hell. That's what justice would require. God is a just God. He's a just judge. And therefore, He must punish all sin. And that's bad news for all of us because Scripture clearly tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. When you read the Scriptures telling us that we must fear God and obey His commandments, the first thought that enters your mind cannot be, okay, I can do that. Rather, the first thought that should enter your mind is, I've never done that. And when I think about it, I... I can't do that at all. I've, I've never done that. But here's the good news. The good news is that God did something about humanity's present condition. The second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, took on flesh and did what you nor I nor anyone else ever could do. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He never once transgressed God's law. He never once stopped loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He upheld all the commandments of God's law flawlessly, always abiding in God's will. And yet, he was condemned by men to die a sinner's death. He was nailed to a cross. And on the cross, the sins of His people, the sins of all who would believe in Him, were imputed to Him. That means they were transferred or credited to Him as though they were His. And further, His, perfect, his perfection, His perfect righteousness was imputed, was credited, transferred to all who would repent and believe in Him so that they could stand before God not lacking 
any righteousness of their own, but in Christ's own righteousness. His sheer, perfect, unblemished perfection. If you do not have Christ's perfect righteousness as your own, then you are putting your hope, then you are putting your trust in what little righteousness you have, which is none at all. You see, this is all part of thinking about the brevity of life. When you think about the brevity and the fragility of life, you have to go here. Every day, you are getting closer and closer and closer to the day in which you will stand before God and you will give an account for your life. And whose righteousness are you going to stand in? Yours? You have none. Or Christ's? Who's nothing but righteous? Whose hope? Who who will your hope be in? David says in verse 7, My hope is in you. His confidence, his meaning, his purpose was found in God. There's the answer. So when David says that, he doesn't mean, well, I've got nothing left to, to hold on to. I've got nothing left to hope in, so I may as well hope in you. What he means is that God is the one who gives his life meaning, who gives his life significance. Everything else is fleeting. Everything else is temporal. Everything else is meaningless. Everything and everyone else is here today and gone tomorrow. But God, God's purposes, God's kingdom, God's glory, those things matter. And they matter eternally. What we do with the days God has given us matters. What we do with today, what we do with tomorrow, what we do with each breath, it all matters. What we hope in matters. And for the person who has been loved by God and adopted into his family, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, God works in us and he works with us to conform us to the likeness of his Son. And for that to happen, he must discipline us. David says, with reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. God cares about our sin. God cares about our iniquity. Not only because it's His universe, but because He personally loves and cares for His children as well. When we have the right view of God and the right view of ourselves, we see the beauty and the love and the glory of what David says here in verse 11, where David writes, you consume as a moth what is precious to him. What David means here is that even when God has redeemed us, even when He's reconciled us to Himself, even when He has forgiven us and made us new, we are still so inclined to pursue earthly treasure. Which is just another way of saying we are so inclined even still to be idolaters, to love and to prioritize things above God. Things that really we shouldn't be putting above God. Nothing goes before God. Anything you put above or before God is idolatry. 
Something has to be pretty precious to us to put it over God. And what David says is, you consume what's precious to your children like a moth. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing. For, for some people, that can be family. For some people, it can be uh, maybe their reputation. It can be their things. It can be maybe their health. Uh, that's a big thing today. Uh, these are not only the, the common things that we can very easily turn into idols, uh, but they are, if I may use the word, acceptable idols. These are the, the clean ones, not the, not the dirty ones. These are the ones that are actually good gifts from God but for whatever reason, we have cherished the gift more than we cherish the giver. So we've turned it upside down. When we realize just how inclined we are to view things as more precious to us than, than God Himself, we understand what a blessing it is to be disciplined by experiencing loss. This is part of the big lie of the prosperity gospel. Where they say, oh, if, if you have enough faith, you'll never experience loss. No. If you have great faith, you will have great loss. But it will be a blessing. God always knows and always gives what is best for us. And He gives and takes accordingly. As Job concluded in chapter 1, verse 21 of Job, he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Was God any less good because God allowed Job to experience loss? No. God is always good. We, we get that. We like to say God is good, right? Do you say it when you experience loss? Because it's true. God is no less good when we experience loss than when we experience gain. And if there was anyone who was forced to deal with the blessing of loss, it was Job. The truth is that if you have believed in God's only Son, the Messiah who was promised back in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, if you have believed savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ, God loves you enough that He is causing all things, whether gain or loss, whether comfort or affliction, He's causing all things, every circumstance in your life to work together for your greatest good. And your greatest good is that you would grow in Christ's likeness. Your life has meaning. But that meaning isn't found in the things of this world. That meaning isn't found in you, yourself. Your significance, your meaning, your purpose is found in God, in living for His pleasure, in living for His glory. Rather than struggling endlessly with life's sorrows and struggles, I implore you today to put your hope in Christ and to live for Him above everything else and to adopt this view that we find in Romans 8.28 and 29, that God is causing all things to work together for our good. And that our greatest good is conformity to Christ's likeness. All things are being used to that end by God. That's where David finds himself as he enters into the fourth and final stanza of this psalm. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 together. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again 
before I depart and am no more. The saints whose stories we read about throughout the Old Testament all had something in common. They all struggled to fit in with the world around them. They were all aliens and sojourners. They weren't content pursuing the things of this world. They weren't content looking for happiness in in these things or finding significance in themselves. And neither should you or I be content with those things in the world. We, like David and like all the saints throughout the Old Testament, are sojourners. We are passing through. But like Abraham, we are looking for a better city than what the world has to offer. We long for a city whose builder and architect is God Himself. We read in Hebrews 11.16 that the saints of old desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Friends, like them, we must set our sights and find our purpose, find our, our significance and our meaning, not in the things of this world, but in the things beyond this world. They, like us, were transient. They were just passing through. But here's the comforting thought. Notice what David says. David doesn't say he's a stranger from God. David says that he is a stranger with God. Though he faced incredible troubles and dangers and disappointments in this world, God was nevertheless always with him. And if you belong to Him, He is always with you as well. As David concludes this psalm, he makes a a kind of strange request if you think about what he's asking for. He requests of God, uh, turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. It's actually very similar to what Job said in Job chapter 10, verses 20 to 21, where we read him asking of God. He says, Withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow. When God disciplines you, it is perfectly fine to ask God to free you from whatever affliction He may be using to refine you to discipline you, to chasten you. Understand that God is never under any obligation to honor your request. He always knows better than you or I know. But if we come to Him humbly, and not with a sense of entitlement with Him, but with thanksgiving, as Paul said, there is abundant peace and joy to be found in making our prayers and petitions known to God. Maybe He will relent in disciplining us. Maybe He won't. Maybe He will simply give you the grace to endure. Maybe He'll relent. Maybe He won't. Either way, the promise is sure that when we make our prayers and petitions known to Him, we will find the peace of God which will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, the way that we grow both through His discipline and through the afflictions that we face and endure in this world, the way that we grow is by finding our hope, finding our meaning, finding our purpose in God and in submitting to Him. Like a loving earthly father, if you ask Him to help you 
Learn the lessons that He has for you to learn in your afflictions. You can be sure that He is always willing, whether that is releasing you from your affliction or giving you the grace to endure. Friends, if you somehow were to know that this year, that 2022 is going to be your last year on earth, would you live your life differently than you lived 2021? I believe you would. Life is short. Life is fragile. Live your life for what matters. The best investment you can make in the days that God has given you is to live your life in obedience to God for the pleasure and the glory of God. Friends, the devil would have you believe that you can just put this off another year. That you can put off a more devoted life until you're older. But you can't guarantee how much older you're going to get. None of us knows when our end will come. And so I implore you today to decide today to live your life for what matters. For what matters eternally. And that is God's kingdom and God's glory. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, thank You again for Your Word. Thank You for the way that Your Word corrects us, rebukes us, reproves us. Thank You for the way that it comforts us. We pray, O Lord, to gain wisdom from what we have seen in David's words. We pray that we would live our lives for the glory of Christ. We pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to number our days, to see the brevity of our lives, and to live our lives for Christ in light of the brevity and fragility of our time. We pray, O Lord, that you would cause much good fruit to be born in our lives, not for our glory, but for Christ's glory. We pray that you would use us. We pray that you would discipline us. We pray that you would chasten us. And we pray that you would give us the grace to endure and to learn and to grow in the likeness of Christ through these things in order that he may be exalted in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.